So we are continuing in our series in Ecclesiastes. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 tonight. Last week we dealt with these really famous words, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. So what was the preacher in Ecclesiastes last week trying to get us to understand? And I think it was a bit of a sort of get over yourself sort of message. He's wanting us to see that the universe is just, it's just we're not in as much control as we think. But we have this gift of a life. It's, uh, it's short, it's fragile, it's unpredictable, but embrace it for what it actually is, not what you think it should be. Live in it hopefully in reverence to God. So that was last week. How does it relate to Ecclesiastes chapter 2? Well, this life, which is hard to make sense of, this life which always has death on the horizon. How do we cope with it? How do we navigate it? How do we deal with it? The preacher says to himself, well, I'm going to have a couple of cracks at coping with this life, and my first crack is at just straight pleasure, just unadulterated pleasure. I'm going to commit my life to straight up happiness. Every decision I make will be measured by the question, does this make me happy? And nothing is off the table here. That's what chapter 2 is all about. He's thinking perhaps he can beat his existential dismay, this world of vanity. Johnny Cash um, sang the song called The Wanderer. Here's one verse from it. I went out there in search of experience to taste and to touch and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. So this is what the preacher does. He's thinking to himself, I feel like there's no meaning, but perhaps if I make pleasure the priority of my whole life, that feeling will go away. So that's what he does. But he's not out there like some frat house hooligan. He's thoughtful about it. Look at verse 1. I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. I will test you with pleasure. He's an experimental hedonist. He's going to throw himself at as much pleasure as he can, and then he's going to assess it. So how does, how, how does that experiment go for him? Well, we get, we get the answer very quickly in the second half of verse 1. I'll read the whole thing again to you. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So his experiment with pleasure didn't work out for him. A life focused on straight-up happiness, it, it held out the promise of meaning, but in the end, it was as substantive as vapor, as mist. It was a life that just sort of floated away. So we have the results of his experiment. But he does helpfully for us go through all the things he tried in his search for a life of worthwhileness. And that's what verses 2 to 8 are about. So what did he try? We've got this list of them. Trying to make sense of life. Trying to make it feel like it's worthwhile. Trying to avoid thinking about death. What are some of the things he tried? Well, the first one on his list is just laughter. Just, just, just laughter. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? So he tries laughter, just endless joking. Now, I love a good laugh. I love a good meme. 
In fact, I, I am a connoisseur of memes. I can get lost in them. Sometimes on my feed, it'll say 57 memes to take your mind off the real world is kind of how it gets pitched at me, and, and it does that for a time. And you can make your whole life about that, though. You can make your whole life about fun, laughter, constant joking. That was actually, to be honest, pretty much, pretty much my 20s. Um, in the end, the preacher says, look, it was just, it's just madness. So he moves on from laughter to what in verse 3? If you have your Bibles open, then you'll see there he moves on from laughter to alcohol. I foresee, I foresee no problems there. So let me, let me read it to you. Verse 3, I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the sun during the few days of his life. So again, he has this weird detachment from what he's doing. He's sort of analyzing the effects it has on his psyche. He's, it's not mindless hedonism. He's, he's going, okay, there's a life of joking and drinking. Will that, will that sustain me existentially? He tries more things, we see, more things. And he really lifts his game here in verses 4, 5, and 6. I'll, I'll read it to you. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards. I made myself gardens, parks, all kinds of trees. I made pools from which the water, which the, water the forest of the growing trees. The preacher took on these great projects, the perfect house, the fantastic garden, the indoor-outdoor flow. He set out to just to transform his environment, to maximize his pleasure. And it actually sounds like he's trying to recreate paradise in his life, doesn't it? Verse 7, his life just seems to get better and better. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves that were born in my house. I had the, also great possessions, herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. So he's got loads of money. He's got servants. He's got people. He's got staff. I'm so jealous of people that have people. You meet people sometimes, and they have people. And they say, I'll get my people. I'll get my people to do the stuff that I don't want to do. He's got people. Wouldn't you want this life? Wouldn't, wouldn't this make your life easier? Wouldn't it make it more pleasurable? If you could get away with it, wouldn't you want some of this? And what if I threw verse 8 into the mix? Listen to this. And I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, men and women singers, concubines, the delight of the sons of man. He had the house. He had the palatial grounds. He had the money. He had the wine. He had the resources. He had the sex. He had the singers. He had singers. He had his own singers. He had the art. He had culture. He had the sophisticated life. He did the pleasure thing better then anyone has had it before. Verse 9 and 10. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Whatever my eyes desired, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. He, he does it all. He does the young person thing of sex and drink. He does the middle-aged thing of the nice house and the great garden. He does the old person thing, the sort of the sophisticated, appreciate art and music kind of, kind of business. And how did it pan out for him? Well, remember, this was a pleasure experiment, right? After enjoying all of this, he says to himself, okay, what, what was the payoff here? And the answer is in verse 11. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, 
All was vanity, vapor, mist, and striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So in the end, a life dedicated to just pleasure, and he did it better than anyone else. It was vacuous. It was empty. It failed to satisfy him. He was trying to invest his life with some meaning by just seeking pleasure. And he said it was like chasing the wind, which is, of course, impossible, isn't it? You you can't capture the wind. You can't bottle it up and save it for the next day. That's the pleasure life. It's like chasing the wind. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves, because it sounds pretty good, this life, doesn't it? What was the problem? Why did this experiment yield a big no? Is it because pleasure is bad? Is God against pleasure? Well, no. No, 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 no. In the Screwtape Letters by Lewis, uh, towards the end, there's, there's, a, there's a little scene of a senior demon, a senior devil, speaking to a junior devil. And it's very interesting what the senior devil says. He says this, Never forget that when we are dealing with pleasure, we are in, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. The enemy being God. I'll say it again. Never forget that when we're dealing with pleasure, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Pleasure is good. Now, the word pleasure, I think, has, in in the English word pleasure, has this sort of sense of forbiddenness about it, which is unfortunate. It's unhelpful for what we're trying to do here. Um, But food and wine and art and well-designed homes and gardens and sex, none of this is bad. It's good. I mean, obviously, if you get into the details, harems, that's obviously very dehumanizing. But sex itself is not bad. So, So why did it fail? Why does the experiment fail? It failed because sex is limited in what it can achieve. Now, if you've, if you've tuned out in the sermon, this is the time you tune back in. This is very important. Joy is limited in what it can achieve in your life. It failed because pleasure simply, it can't carry the weight of the meaning we place on it. You know, if you're looking for a life that's just a succession of pleasurable experiences, the YOLO life, I mean, it sounds brilliant, but it's a workaround. It's, it's a Hail Mary pass. It won't satisfy you. You're hoping it'll give you a sense of worthwhileness It just cannot deliver on that. One of the reasons, there's a multiplicity of reasons for this, but one of the reasons is that often people who are seeking pleasure are actually looking for something else. So sex, for example, hooking up with lots of people. There's more going on than just seeking pleasure, isn't there? There's more going on than just sex, because in sex, many people, if if it's a lot of hookups... You're looking to sex because you want to feel wanted. You're looking to sex because you want to feel like you're attractive. And you keep doing it and you're doing it and that feeling diminishes because there's a diminishing return on investment there. See, the preacher's experiment failed because a life of straight pleasure seeking, it just can't deliver on the promise that this will make your life all feel worthwhile. So, I think the next question we have to ask ourselves is, so what kind of relationship should a Christian have with joy? What kind of relationship should a Christian have with pleasure? 
Well, I'm going to give you just a couple of very quick answers to this. Firstly, and most simply, don't build your life on the pursuit of pleasure. Don't build your life on the pursuit of pleasure. Don't make pleasure the goal. You will be disappointed in your life. Secondly, and I want to read from 1 Timothy 4 here, 1 Timothy 4, uh, 2 to 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. And the people that do that, here's what they're going to do. Okay? They will forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Everything was created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Do you see what Paul is saying here to, to Timothy about these folks? He's saying there's always going to be these Christian types who are like pleasure, bad, spiritual stuff, good. And it's just nonsense, right? This, this life of denial is not... Look, Paul says no to that. He says all sources of joy in your life are ultimately from God. So enjoy them with thanksgiving, the joyful experience in your life when they happen, these joyful experiences, and you'll have them. How do we respond to them? We say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. This is not what I'm going to build my life on. This is not what my life is about. Only God can give my life meaning. But thank you, Jesus, for this great adventure, for this fantastic glass of wine, for this nice meal, for that really funny story I just heard. And I think this is so important because uh, I find myself tormented by social media, recently tormented, because it's where I'm originally from in New Zealand, it's summer in New Zealand. And all my friends back in the old country are on holiday. And they are holidaying in these impossibly beautiful places and having these grand adventures. And I'm just reading all about it, all my old friends together, and it's just messing with me. See, one of the things that social media does is it deludes us into thinking that the good life, right, the good life is one where you, where you maximize your experiences. It's all about fun. It's all about joy. It's all about new pleasures. And that can easily become what your life is just about. It's just about that. And some of us realize, or some of us actually know, some of us don't realize this. We don't realize what we're doing is we're prioritizing pleasure in our life more than prioritizing Jesus. We're making these decisions in our life, asking ourselves, will this maximize my joy? Instead of asking ourselves, does this honor Jesus? Folks, and that's, that's, just, that's just straight idolatry. Now, you have all seen the footage of these mobs storming the U.S. Capitol buildings this last week, right? You've seen this. Some of them carrying Christian signs, Jesus saves, uh, God, guns, and something else. I can't remember the other one. But they're dragging Jesus into this mess, and it's shameful, and I'm heartbroken at the compromised message that this sends the world about the Christian faith. And the folks that are doing this are nationalists and they believe their country is the most important country on the planet. They're people whose identity and meaning is welded to political parties. Some of them have Jesus, but clearly a political ideology has more of their heart than Jesus because we know, and we know that because they want to take and overthrow and we have a king who gave his life away. Now, most of us have watched these 
watch these videos and we're watching the news and we're looking and we're aghast and we're thinking this is crazy and it's shameful and these people are so lost to their idols. But so are we on the West Coast. There are so many of us and we just, we just want to live the perfect, outdoorsy, super fun West Coast life. And we have welled our hearts to that because we think this is what makes my life worthwhile. Our idols are much prettier than those presented in Washington last week, but they're still idols. And they rob the glory, they rob glory from Jesus. So how are we to live? We are to live in humility and obedience with Jesus as our great treasure. We are supposed to accept the limitations of our life. Our life's short and they're fragile and they're unpredictable, but there are great joys within them. And we are to be tremendously thankful for those. And when we see those pleasures as gifts from God, the focus of our life will be on the giver and not the gift. We will not become idolaters. I want to both finish by just reading one of the verses from Ecclesiastes that I particularly love. It's later on in chapter 2. I read it last week. I want to read it again. He's summarizing the chapter for us, the preacher of Ecclesiastes. He says this in verses 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? Enjoy your life. Those joys are gifts from God. But keep him the goal. That's Ecclesiastes 2. We're going to see.